to the 247 Real Talk. I'm your host, Julian Perry, along with my guest for this episode. She is a storyteller, a game changer, the recipient of the 2020 Story Summit Founder Award, and the author of Racism, The Real Reason I Left the South. My conversation was with none other than Regina Hansen. We'll be right back. So good evening, Regina. Welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me on 247 Real Talk. Thank you for having me, Julian. It's a pleasure. And it's a pleasure to have you on the show. And uh, as I do with all my episodes, I'm going to jump right into it. So author of Racism, The Real Reason I Left the South. I'm going to sit back and enjoy this one. So I'm going to let you take it away. I published this in December of last year. I actually had taken stories from my family's experience throughout the 20th century um, and my own experience, and they had sort of been piling up in my soul, if you will. I felt a need to share them. I was going to try to put them in a different book. And a dear friend of mine said they don't work in that book. And so I thought, wow, do I have enough to compile a single work just about racism? And I started mulling that over. And then Charlottesville, Virginia happened in 2017. When that took place, my spirit said, you have to write this book and you need to do it now. It took me another year, maybe even year and a half to process all of my own fears and emotions about producing this work. If both my parents hadn't died of cancer, I would never have been able to have written this book. It's very honest, brutally so at times, um, shocking, and I, I left no stone unturned in dissecting my parents, their reactions, their life's experiences, as well as my own. And what I tried to do throughout the work was put together a solution. I tried to let the reader know, because I'm white, and I have a lot of friends who are white who don't believe in white privilege. They don't see it. They don't get it. So I said in this book, if that's your case, you don't have enough black friends. <laughs> and and you need to start getting real about this. And don't go up to your black coworker and expect them to open their soul to you about everything they've been through in their lives because that's not genuine. Look within yourself first. Ask yourself, what have you done? What language have you used? What instances have you turned the other cheek when you could have been proactive? And help someone um, and start changing yourself first. So that was where this book came from. And it did pour out of me. Once I got my nerve up, the work itself came rather quickly. I'm very proud of it. 
Um, I've had very good reactions, particularly from the black community, which is a great concern. And I'm proud of it. I hope that it helps fuel the Black Lives Matter movement and helps people get to a better place about the lives they're living and being anti-racist so, versus... Go ahead. Finish out. I, I want to get into um, sort of taking the audience along the journey going way back to your parents and starting the story from there because in our in our previous in our previous conversation you and I had you kind of laid out a little bit to me the history of this and how, you know what brought you to this place um, of understanding so you know give us a little background starting off with you know where you know who you were then and you know your parents that seemed to be a, you know a great part of the birth of this Absolutely. I was raised in a small town called Lawrenceville, Georgia. Um, I was born in 70, so it was a very rural community at that time. It only had one little red light in town. And we had a black area of town, which were the projects, and then everything else around it was white. And those communities didn't mix. You had a black funeral home. You had a black church. um, And there were black grocery stores. I could go as a child to a grocery store and not see a black person. And it wasn't because we didn't have black people in our community. It's because it was that racially divided. And my parents were born in 32 and 36. Again, born in the same little town. So their perspective should have been rather similar, both raised in devout Christian homes. However, my father was very racist. And my mother was anti-racist. And growing up in that household (laughs) was very interesting. It gave me insight into seeing what other households were really like for white folks in rural areas, particularly in the South. Um, My father told me a story once I became an adult. He would have never told me this story when I was young. That when he was four years old, His mother had died when he was seven months old. So this was in the height of the Great Depression. This would have been 1936, 1937. His father had taken up with another widower in town, and she had three children. So between the two of them, they had five, and they were living in a little home. And my grandmother, uh, my grandfather had a job with the WPA. And that was a premier job to get during the Depression. Very Jobs were hard to come by for anyone, but that would have been a coveted position, okay? For whatever reason, they didn't marry. Now, my father's maternal grandmother lived down the road, not even three-quarters of a mile. And she did not want my father and his sister growing up in this house of sin, okay? This is a very southern Protestant mentality. So she stuck the clan on my father's father. Now, this is a white family, okay? What she did was she called on the clan, and they sent a police officer first. When you hear people tell you that the clan is in the police department, that's not a lie. Just because the story I'm telling you is from 1936 doesn't mean it isn't still happening. Um, That's a reality. The police officer drove out to the house, and my father and his sister were playing in the yard. 
And he looked at them and said, why don't you get in the police car? I'll take you for a ride down to your grandmother's house because she has an extra bedroom for you and you won't have to you know, share with other children. And you'll be happier there. And so my father was four and his sister was about five and a half. And you can imagine being children. Of course, you want to go for a ride in the police car and you don't really think through what's happening or what you're doing. And so they jump in this car and they go to grandmother's house. And within the hour, the Klan served my grandfather with papers. Now, this is how they did things in those days. They told him he had 24 hours to get out of town because he was living in sin and he had no place there. So he goes back in to this widower who he started keeping house with and he says, if I don't go, I'm going to be dead. And of course, she's devastated because it's in the depression and they're lucky to have a roof over their head and food in their mouth. And he says, I'll head up to Detroit. I'll go to Michigan. There's supposed to be some good jobs up there. And I'll send for you and the kids as soon as I can. My father didn't see his father again until he was 14 years old. And he hitchhiked all the way up to Michigan at the age of 14 to see his dad. And that's when his father told him what had happened and why he had to leave town. So that's the first story in the book. <laughs> um. Yeah, that that is it, it it takes a while to digest that to understand that you know because a lot of times when we think about the clan we you know we who wouldn't know a story like you just told um including myself we automatically think a you know white versus black issue we you know we don't think white versus white with the clan at least I don't and I'm sure a lot of people don't either so that's an interesting start because that shows that their tolerance was not just, you know, it, 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 or their, their sense of superiority crossed every boundary. Correct. That was the point I was trying to make. I used it first intentionally. And I explained to my readers, you need to understand the Klan is about control and power. And if you think that you're safe because you're white, you're wrong. They can turn on you at any moment, just like the Third Reich did. Man, if, if you had brown eyes but you were white, sorry about your luck. Hitler wanted blonde, you know, hair, blue-eyed children. And people don't think about that. But they should. So... That was that was his experience, and what, you know what, what was what's what's the next step in the story? Because it's interesting to now understand the evolution of your experience. You know, I I don't want to give away too much of the book. I want to say that there are a lot of personal stories tied together. And it goes back and forth between experiences my mother had, you know, trying to be anti-racist in the workforce in downtown Atlanta, you know, in the 60s and 70s and how she dealt with that and the friendships that she had, um, as well as the, the boundaries I experienced in my youth. And my biggest dichotomy through all of it was trying to fully comprehend 
how my father, who I loved, who I knew to be a, a good man who would give, literally, if a man stopped him in the street and asked him for money, he'd give him the shirt off his back or open up his wallet to him. This was not the type of person we think of as a a racist, as a, as a proud boy, as somebody who would march through the streets with a gun threatening to kill anyone. So I'm trying to understand how my dad, who took such good care of his family, never raised his voice or a hand to any of us, could have such hate and disdain for anyone who wasn't right. I mean, he hated Jewish people, he hated black people, you know, everybody. Like, how do you get there, especially if the Klan destroyed your family and took your father away from you when you were a child? Like, I, I still don't have my head completely wrapped around that. Unraveling his mentality, trying to love him in spite of this gross inadequacy and dissecting his psyche has helped me try to unravel all of this for all of us. I took away from it, we're all going to have biases according to our life experience. Nobody's above that. And, And a lot of them are due. Like, we'll read a lot about how black men are afraid of dogs. And there's a reason for for that. Not that there isn't black men who have pets as dogs, but there's a a fear even from childhood of being chased down or attacked by dogs. Well, there's a reason for that because police have done that for decades and decades. And because slave owners used to send out dogs to help sniff out runaway slaves. So I look at my father and I look at his experience and his time in Korea, and I try to better understand him so that in the next generation, we don't make the same mistake of grooming that same mentality in future generations, if that makes sense. Yes, it actually does. But tell me something, without giving away, you know, a lot of your book or, or, you you know, many of the details, but can you recall... Sometime on that journey, uh, an, an encounter between your father and a black person that left an impression on you? Yes, that's a great question, and it doesn't give away too much of the book. <laughs> the way I organized the book was by towns that the experience happened in, like Lawrenceville, Savannah. Um, some stories in Alabama, and then I have a one about my father, one about my mother, one about me. Um, and when I talked about Alabama, I conveyed a story where my dad had moved to this really small town, and he'd gone to the bank, and he was feeling like a big fish in a little pond. He'd retired. He'd sold some property in Georgia. He bought a nice house. He was adding on to it. He had the first new automobile he'd ever had in his life. Life was good. And he stepped out of his truck and started to walk into the bank, saw a black man, said hello to him, and the black man didn't speak to him. My father told me this 
with so much anxiety and pain in his heart that I was shocked. He was like, I've just moved to this new place, you know, thinking life is beautiful. And I can't even get a black man to say hello to me on the street. Now, at the time, I was 25, maybe a little younger, maybe 23 or 24. So I didn't have the words for my father in this moment. I just remember thinking to myself, you needed to feel that. Because you need to understand what it is for a black man to walk down the street and be ignored. To have people not make eye contact with him, to avert their eyes, to look away to act as if he doesn't exist. He needed that. He needed to feel that pain to understand what it was like for that shoe on that other person's foot. And it's amazing that you, you know, and and all this is making me think it's amazing that you, you remember that story because in modern day, times in in, in in these days and what we think about the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, a lot of people involved in the movement today are missing a key component, and that is history. And not when I say they're missing the component, we you know, we can go to the history books, we can see what black and brown people have endured. But I don't think, at least I have, I don't think many people have heard it from a perspective like, you know, your perspective, like, like you writing your book and like your, you know, the insights you're giving us on this, on this episode of this podcast. And I say that because I have to believe based on, you know, on my life and the life of many that I've encountered that, or the lives of many that I've encountered that what we experience today is more, more similar than we you know would would even imagine um to think that your father was in such pain and it wasn't because of there was a missing act of kindness but you know if, I, if I'm getting you correctly I'm pretty sure I am it was that it was someone who was beneath him and should have automatically given that response that was due to him as a white man. You are 100% correct, Julian. 100% correct. There was no doubt in my mind, because I knew what he thought by the things that he said to me in our intimate conversations that he would not necessarily say to anyone else, that Jewish people were beneath him, that black people were beneath him, And if he could be so kind as to acknowledge them, how dare they not do the same for him? There's another story in there about us driving through a very nice area in Atlanta uh, several years after that, probably about five. And we passed a Jewish synagogue. Now, I want to be sure to convey my father was raised in poverty. I mean, there were a couple of summers he didn't have shoes on his feet. Uh, The grandfather had committed suicide, so he was raised by this grandmother. Things were not super swell, okay? 
And he resentfully looked at the synagogue and turned to me in the car and said, do you know if a Jewish man sets up a business, the synagogue backs him? And if it fails, they'll back him up again. And he was pissed. I mean, voice just dripping in venom, you know? By then I was old enough and I've always been outspoken enough <laughs> to tell him exactly what I thought. I said, Daddy, that's how it should be. I said, I left our church because they didn't support our people. And I'm not going to be paying tithes and donating my time and making the church money if they're not going to help that single mother with three kids pay her life bill when she needs help. That's what should be happening. But my father's frustration was the fact that he didn't have anybody to back him up. Now, see, this is a huge part of what we need to understand about people's hate and resentment. It is less about them thinking they're superior and more about them believing that they've had it just as hard and nobody should have it easier than they do. Mm, that, 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 well, mm. So that, that's a really interesting perspective. I can think of a few people that I have these discussions with would, that would, if they were sitting in a circle having this conversation with you, they would immediately jump out to their seats and beg to differ. But I would understand that too, because like I said, what you're sharing in this conversation is quite different than a lot of the perceptions of, um, uh, you know, most of the population of the people who have, who have experienced racism in this time, because it, it reeks of superiority. Um, and I don't remember all the names, so forgive me if I, if I don't, but there have been many stories recently right here uh, and, and around the country in different places. I remember one in New York where uh, a woman in Central Park, um, there was a man who asked her to put her dog on a leash. She was a vice president of a big company too. And she, um, mm -hmm. right. And, and she, you know, she, she called the cops and, and luckily he was filming this, you know, this encounter because number one, everyone is pretty sure that if he did not have a camera and he was not filming it, he probably would have been arrested that day as the perpetrator. And number two... Oh, it's bad. It's yeah, not shot and killed. Exactly. And number two, um, just to understand that, you know, the depth of this, because I remember saying to someone, well, here you have, number one, this woman who obviously believes that she's superior, obviously, and that's what many people encounter. Number two... When you think of the impact that she would have had over time, being the vice president of the company means that there are several layers of hierarchy under her. And I'm sure throughout those layers, there are minorities built into the structure of the company who were probably victims of racism every day, but for the need to feed their families and to hold on to their job, they just live with it and they live with this this feeling of disdain because they know for a fact that this, this, this superior complex that they're subjected to 
is is not a justifiable complex, you know, or justifiable situation in any way because many of these minorities are are highly educated, highly motivated, but are sort of kept in the in their place by someone such as this this lady with the dog. We've we've seen on the news several other instances around the con- the country where you know, and, and the beauty of our time now is that everyone has a camera and everyone's filming. And I've, I've, I was, I've been shocked in seeing some of the encounters where in this day and age, people have been so, they're, they're, they're so openly racist. I won't go into, you know, the explosion of it that's happened over the, um, the last few years. You know, I, I make that inference and people can draw a conclusion from, you know, from that. But it, it, it shows us that this, didn't go anywhere. It was, it was, you know, it was in the closet for, you know, for, um, for, because we didn't have a society that allowed the open explosion of it. And we, you know, in the last few years, we've had one that allows people to, um, express themselves in a manner that shows their, shows their, their true nature. So when you're know, hearing a story from your perspective as a white woman who, was bold enough to confront not only the reality of racism from your perspective, but within your own family is, is amazing. And I, I have to ask you when you first told this story, when you, or you, or someone first read your book, whatever the first encounter was of your perspective from someone that you know, that is black, what was that like? I I have to tell you that the first response I got from someone who was black who read my book was an email response that just about brought me to tears. You know, as I shared earlier, and I have two points I want us to get back to, so don't let me forget. Um, I want to talk about the fear within people and the lack of control and how that influences their racism. And I also want to talk about um, rhetoric and how that fuels racism. But to answer your question, I'm so grateful for this woman. She sent me this beautiful email thanking me for my bravery and being so bold and honest, even in dissecting myself and said, I hope that this is taught in curriculum in schools across the country and helps us overcome white supremacy. It was just so beautiful. And then the next black man that read it, I didn't know. He was a friend of the person who um, edited my book. And his response, he also emailed me. He said, this book is divine intervention, Regina. And he said, I'm trying to put together Um, a big seminar on racism in Florida in the fall. Would you participate? And of course I said, yes, I'd be honored to. Um, But due to COVID, that hasn't happened. So I'm really grateful for those responses because I was very fearful that Black folks would feel like, as a white woman, you know, what do you think you're doing? I can't speak to the Black experience. I can only speak to my experience with black folks and my family and the interactions that we've had. But I can certainly speak out to the injustices and wrongs 
I can certainly point a finger at myself and say, I was raised Southern and was so ignorant in my own ways, not realizing how I could fuel racism, that it took me decades to grow out of that also. And a point of the book is to say to white folks, yes, you have bias. Just admit it. Oh, my God, stop turning the other cheek and running in the opposite direction. We're never going to heal this country and get past this if you don't start doing some serious self-examination. I just mentioned rhetoric. A cute little story I put in the book. I wanted people to have some moments to laugh because it's pretty intense. And I'm embarrassed that I was 27 years old when this happened, but that just tells you how Southern and naive, you know, I was. I was living in downtown Atlanta and I had black friends and I can almost promise you that at some point I turned a phrase, not understanding what I was saying, to a black woman. And it wasn't until years later that I realized what it done, I'd done and I was so mortified. But my friend Michelle was helping me unload something from my car. And something that we used to say in the South is a thank you is mighty white of you. And she looked at me and said, Regina, you can't say that. It's racist. I'm like, what do you mean? Mighty white of you? She goes, mighty white? I said, I thought it was mighty wide, W-I-D-E, like mighty big of you to do. And she just dropped her head in her hand. I was blushing. I was like, oh, my God, who have I wronged by saying this for probably 20 years of my life, not even realizing the phrase I was turning was a racist term because our Southern draw is so thick. I misunderstood the word. <laughs> now, please, yeah, please laugh because, <laughs> I mean, I don't even know what else to do but laugh at that. But that's the truth, and I talk about that in the book. We need to really be careful about, especially in the South, the things that we say that we don't think about that do harm. When I was in college, um, I was in grad school, and I read something. We were we just read the biography on Theolonius Monk. So something clicked in my head, and suddenly I realized the term black and white should never be used. Because the term black and white equates to right and wrong. And in people's subconscious minds, white is right and black is wrong. We shouldn't even use that phrase anymore. And at that point in time, I took it out of my vocabulary and I haven't used it in over 10 years. And I'm sure there's a lot of people that would scoff at me and say that's silly, but it isn't. As white folks, we have a responsibility to look at media and look at the way our culture communicates and the things that we're doing and saying, who are we holding a door open for? Who are we calling sir and who are we not? That's our responsibility as white folks to get that together because we can change our rhetoric. We can change our behavior and we have a moral responsibility to do so in order to change our culture because we're destroying our society. Wow. That, that is, um, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking as I'm listening to you, there is a, a gentleman who is 
someone of an activist who is very knowledgeable in black history. And he's been on uh, at least two episodes of my podcast. And I can just imagine a, a, a three-way conversation and kind of sitting back and, and hearing his responses um, to what you're saying, because I think that what, you know, what you, what you've done in your book and what you're saying is not the experience that most of us have encountered. It's refreshing. It's, it's, um, I think one of the reasons that your book would be widely, widely accepted is because it's honest and it's, and, and I think that for many people, it will be a kind of response would be, well, that's what we've been trying to tell you forever, you know, and, and no one's listening. Um, and so I, I think, you know, your, your recounting of, of, you know, how you grew up and, and what you witnessed is, is powerful. But I also have to think, I asked you, you know, what was the response of, you know, black people who encountered you and your story, especially when you first published it. But I think there's a similar question. Since we still live in a world of, of hate and racism, what was the encounter of the first white person who disagreed with you? What you just asked me is a great question, Julian. Reason being, the people who read it, many that I grew up with in that same town of Lawrenceville, if they bothered to read it, they were positive. Yes, we've had similar experiences. Yes, we agree with what you're saying. And we're proud of you for doing this. The people who disagreed with me, interestingly enough, I had two girlfriends here in Las Vegas that I met here in Vegas from different parts of the country. And before I even published the book, one of them was a graphic artist, and I asked her to do the cover. And she hardly replied, well, I don't agree with it, but I'll do it. And I kind of opened up the palm of my hand to her and I said, that's okay. Well, I mean, I can do the work. I said, no, 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 no. I wouldn't want you to do anything you don't agree with. But I knew at that moment, if you aren't going to bother to read a word of this, you're already so closed off. There's nothing I could say or do to change your mind anyway. And she was not alone. There was another girl in our circle who was the same way. An avid reader that I would have loved to have given a copy of the book, but who reiterated the first, I use the term friend loosely, um, who said she didn't agree with it. Now, the great thing about this book for me is I now know who to step back from in my life. <laughs> Because I have conveyed something that is so incredibly important to me. I feel it's my life's purpose to be an activist in this role, to open people's eyes to what they can do to change and be a better person and take us, help us evolve to being a better society. So if I have anyone in my circle, not just someone who disagrees with me, but someone who's so closed off they won't bother to read the book, then I don't want to break bread with you. Because our souls are too far apart, right? But at, at the same time, part of the 
And, and, and it's, it's interesting, as I said, I'm sitting here and I'm, I'm absorbing all of this, and it's interesting because you write a book, you have, as a white uh, person in America, and you have people of your, your own race uh, not accepting of it. And, you know, we, we, when, when we, when we, we would kind of want to say, or, or, you know, black and brown people kind of want to say, you know, how do we change? How do you, how do you accomplish your mission when you can't get them to change their minds and we can't get them to change their minds? And no matter how loud we scream or no matter, you know, the movement, you know, look at what people have to go through. And I have to be careful when I say people, because I honestly have to say that today's movement is quite different. If you look at the marches around the country, it's again, something I refer to as generation Z and generation Z, the current generations and generations coming up. Um, they're a lot more accepting. And so when you look at these marches, there's every race in there marching on behalf of equality. But to think of where we are today in terms of everything else in society, technology and all the growth mankind has seen, and yet we have this one thing that, you know, we, we, put, we put a space station that, that, that orbits the earth. We, we go to, you know, we have astronauts taken off in, 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 in these incredible vehicles, and yet we can't come over something that, or we can't overcome something as, you know, like prejudice and racism. And, you know, I, I, I don't want to be skeptical in, in that sense that I, I, you know, I think that the power of your, your book and I think that the power of bringing your story on this platform and people hearing it at this time in our history will add a lot of hope. And I think in some people it will fuel a you know, drive to, to push even harder, but you still have to ask yourself that question in the back of your mind. If, if you can't change the minds of other white people, how do black people do that? I'm actually glad you asked that because that's in the thick of it, Julian. And I, I really appreciate where you're coming from with that. This has been such a huge like life lesson for me, because once I dove in, I said to myself, you have to be very comfortable with the fact that if only one heart and mind has changed, it was worth you enduring whatever death threats, whatever hate mail you're going to get. I presented it at the National Black Studies Conference in Atlanta in March, and a professor came up to me right after. And he said to me everything that I said to my roommate three months before when I published the book, he said, the Klan's not going to like what you write. They're not going to like what you're saying here. You're going to get death threats. You need to be prepared for that. And as he's speaking to me and he is reiterating everything I said to my roommate, you may want me to move out because this could get really ugly. You know, I started to smile a little bit in a knowing way. And I said, I know. I know that everything that you're saying to me right now is true, but it'll be worth it if one heart and mind is changed. 
Now, what you're saying to me is, how are we going to fix this? Because you and I both know there's always going to be people that hate. But this takes me back to one of the things I wanted us to talk about. And you mentioned the white VP in the par- in Central Park in New York. And she was fired, and rightly so. I was grateful to, to see that from a corporation. As we dissect people's psyches, and it's necessary to do, because a lot of this mentality comes from people who don't soul-search, who are easily led, and by led, I mean misled, by others. That woman, even though she was a VP, there's something in her life where she feels subjugated. There, I don't know if it's her marriage. I don't know if she feels like she had kids and shouldn't have, and now she's in bondage. But a lot of times, people react in situations where they try to get an upper hand and they try to gain control. All of this is because deep in their psyche, they feel out of control. There's something in their life that they feel victimized by and they haven't made peace with. I'm a psychoanalyst, okay? This is just what I've experienced and learned in my time here. And I think we need to start looking at people that way. As I shared with you, I distanced myself from these two girlfriends because of their reaction towards the book without having read a word. But as I'm also going through this, and I I can get very passionate when I start debating people that have been friends for years about this, and I have to talk myself through it. I have to say, Regina, you can't come too hard. You can't get too mad because anger is not going to change that mind. It's going to push that person further away. It's almost like you have to outsmart them, but with empathy. You have to love them through it, even when their behavior is so completely unlovable. And you have to understand that their their thoughts are a direct result of their experiences. And sometimes it's religion. And how do you work through that? That's, that's deep. I was raised Pentecostal, so I know how those people think. It's so multi-layered, Julian. It's, it's not something that we're going to fix in this generation alone. But as you just stated, I've been so proud of the mix of protesters. I was very moved by all of the mothers in Portland who stood in in front of and to protect the black protesters when the police came out. And what these mothers are saying is, you're not going to kill the best friend of my child because we now have that generation where Black and whites are starting to be friends in a way that we weren't when we were children. Like we would see each other at school, but we wouldn't go to each other's house. Well, now that divide is starting to be crossed. And so you now have these millennial mothers who are like, "Uh uh-uh, not on my watch. You're not causing our family pain by killing a black child that we may love as if they are our own. So it's taken time to get us to that point, but it's happening. And part of this situation is we have to have enough white folks that are willing to call other white folks out. It's not going to happen with just one book. It's not going to happen with just one person or one relationship. 
But if it spreads like wildfire, if you have more white folks uniting and stepping up and defending and in a public place where they see someone who's black who's being chastised or victimized, they're going to step up and say, let me get you out of here. Just like the BML protester, I think it was in Pennsylvania, I'm not 100% sure, who, big, beautiful black man who picked up a white supremacist and threw him over his shoulder because he was being attacked in the crowd, and he got him out of there. That's going to start going both ways. I think that's what we're going to start seeing now, is that these younger generations are going to start stepping in and saying, not on my watch. And the more that happens, the closer we'll get to having a society that is anti-racist. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, I, I want to, um, I want to ask you a couple of questions. I want to make a statement first of all, and then ask you a couple of questions to sort of um, tie this together, because we know this is a conversation that, well, you know, is, is not only never ending at this point, we'll, we'll you know, we'll, we'll go, we'll continue on past our generation. But the, the first point I want to make is I want to go back to that woman in, in uh, Central Park for a second, just to tell you, or just to, just to share a perspective of, of people I've spoken with and, and the difference in thought. You know, she was fired. But in the community, in the black community, has experienced so much. There's not a belief that she was fired because of what she did. There was a belief that she was fired because she was caught. Because these companies are, are recognizing that as black and brown people, as minorities rise, they have the power of influence. They have their, their, their part or a continuous part of the growing wealth within that community. And a lot of these companies realize the impact to their bottom line, not just from the, the black people as customers, but also um, black you know, business, other businesses that they do business with and the perception around the world and the fact that Generation Z now, the impact is not just coming from black people, but if, if white people and all the other races who are part of the Black Lives Matter movement for equality recognize what this company stands for, then the company's bottom line will be hurt. Because, and, and I tell you where that comes from. It comes from the fact that it is hard to believe. I mean, and I've worked in companies with, you know, with, with the same ethnic makeup. And it's hard to believe. It's impossible that in their own private circles, that these VPs and these, these top level uh, layers of staff who are in many companies are predominantly white, don't have these little jokes and conversations amongst themselves and exhibit that behavior in a circle where it's acceptable because they're all white. So it is kind of hard to believe that in, in, you know, for people in the black and brown community that when she behaved this way, that some, no one in her company knew from the top. And, you know, it was like, oh, look how she behaved. You know, it, it's against our company policy. No, the problem is for them and, what a lot, and for a lot of companies is that once the person makes the mistake and gets caught, they have to separate themselves from that person. But the mentality still remains at the top of those companies. And that is evident. And, and, and that's where I kind of segue to my, ne- my next question to you. Look at society today. 
And we, we cannot end this conversation without touching on the political atmosphere. And, and from your perspective and from your book and from your experience and from the passion and everything you feel, what's your take on, on politics in America today and how it, it influences racism? First and foremost, I agree with everything you just said surrounding the VP and her firing, 110%. Companies are always about the bottom line. And it's only because Generation Z is so socially conscious that they were as reactive as they were. Like I said, I was pleased to see it because I was surprised to see it. <laughs> um, politically speaking, man, do we have a situation on our hands. Now, I'm a bit of a positive patty. So I look at every situation and I say, what's the lesson in this? And what's the greater good that can come of it? From the very beginning of 45's presidency, I felt like the divisiveness that was culminating in his call, his reach out to white supremacy groups, which was evident from the beginning, in my opinion was a necessary evil. Now, please understand, in no way do I condone a single life that we've lost or the hell that the black community has been through. But let's also be very frank. And Will Smith said this publicly a few weeks after I'd had the same thought. This shit's been going on forever. We just have cameras on our phones now. Right? Because the law's been sweeping it underneath the rug and writing their report to justify their abuse and murderous behavior. So what we're seeing isn't anything new. We're just now seeing it. White folks who were completely tuned out now have it in their face on social media. The pandemic has played a role in that because you've got parents working 50 plus hours a week spending another 10 hours in the road taking their kids to ball practice and ballet practice and suddenly they're at home and they now have time on their hands and they're now watching these videos and they're now realizing what's going on could happen in front of their child or to their child's friend and they are being taken up by the collar and shaken by what's going on it's almost been a necessary evil I've said before in previous interviews, I don't know that the Black Lives Matter movement would have had as much momentum, particularly with the white community involvement, had it not been for the pandemic giving them the room and the space to see firsthand what was going on, which again has always gone on. It just so happens to be recorded and published now. Yeah, that's that, that. Yeah, that is true, and and people have a lot more time to uh, scrutinize, you know, what's going on, and to listen carefully to what's being said, and to you know, it's it's unfortunate that in this day and age, we're you know, we're even having this conversation, especially since we look to leadership to be the most impartial. Um, 
at least publicly. And that's, you know, what I've seen and what a lot of people have experienced on both sides of the, of the spectrum is unprecedented. And um, I'm not sure, you know, where it goes in the next step or whether it, you know, whether the, it, you know, it, it gets worse before it gets better. And, it, you know, it probably will because even after the so many, you know, Breonna Taylor, uh, uh, George Floyd and all these things, we are still seeing these things happening in you know in our faces in 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 you know in in front of our eyes and and I think that the fuel and the anger that that people see exhibited across the country unless you unless you you know you stand in those shoes it's hard to understand but it it feels so helpless when you look at a case, and I'm gonna. I haven't spoken of it on any of my episodes yet, but I'm gonna touch for a quick second on Brianna Taylor and the fact that you're sleeping in your bed in your home, and you want you you wind up dead. You know, they they someone has the nerve to talk about her boyfriend who shot. I think he shot one of the officers who came in with a licensed firearm in his home in the middle of the night, you know, and, and you kind of want, in unannounced. That's yes, important. yes, they are bursting and yet you have no recourse. You can't, you know, you know, and the thing is, I think that one, something that's very important to be said and, 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 you know, there are people politically that try to create this divide. They are, they are good people in every category of life. So they're, they're, you know, they're, they're good police officers. I know a lot of them who, who are compassionate and who are understanding, you know, even when they come across the most difficult situations. But when you have a situation where someone, we don't know whether, you know, whether, what it was, we just know that no one is held accountable and someone is dead. And you have to ask the question. You have to. If that was turned around the other way, would would the outcome be the same? You know, and, and it's and when you when you sort of go back through the, through the history of these things, I mean, we I remember something that always stays vividly in my mind is was the Rodney King situation, and the fact that he was on camera being beaten. And the first trial, all these cops got acquitted and they had to, you know, it, it, it took the anger, the outcry, you know, for this, for, for a better outcome. And so, you know, people need to understand that these names that we call George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, you know, they're human beings, you know, they're human, they're, they're, and I said it before in another podcast also, when we're born, we're not born colorless. And then we have, you know, the doctor comes in and says, so what color do you want to be throughout your life? And we pick a color. And then someone says, to her, well, you could have been the other color, but you chose to be. No, that's not the case. We're all born as human beings. And yet, you know, we managed to develop this hate for each other. And the only difference in terms of appearance and 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 you know and makeup is the, the color of our skin, and and 
I think it is unacceptable for someone to lose their life, not to a home invasion of a burglar who will you know, have a different motive, but at the hands of the people who they're expecting to protect them. And nothing is, you know, there's no accountability. And people put politics and money and power and everything over human life. I mean, this, this is a time that's, you know, maybe, maybe not as, I don't, you know, I, I don't want to talk, speak to history because everybody's experience is different, but this is a time that is still so sad in our lives. And I think for, from your perspective, for you to write such a book and to sort of, sort of an effort to build a bridge, not only of understanding, but to reach across the aisle and say, let's tear down the, you know, the walls of color. Let me share my story so you understand that in the midst of all this racism and prejudice, there are people who are white, who are, who are non-black, who are non-black and brown, who identify with this is really powerful. And so as I wrap this up, I'm going to ask you to speak to my audience. You have a message. And apart from, you know, uh, for me telling them to, you know, go out and get this book and I'll give you a chance to tell us where we can get it, where it can be purchased. Um, what, what, what message you want to leave tonight? First, I'd like to say, if I may, I'm glad you brought up Brianna. I did an eight-episode series on YouTube called Let's Get Real About Racism, and I talked about what happened to her, I believe, in number five. You said that you believe what happened to her is unacceptable, or you think. That's the, that's the word you used. You know, we, I think what happened is unacceptable. But I believe you know what happened is unacceptable. And I know what happened is unacceptable. The fury that is around the release of all those policemen who are going to walk away from that without doing any time is completely unacceptable. But if what comes from it is change, I believe Brianna would say, okay. When I look at pictures of her, an award-winning EMT, talking about being able to see the love of God shining off of someone. I mean, I've never looked at a photograph of someone and felt God's love coming off of them like I do when I see pictures of her. That was such an incredible loss. Someone who gave their life to save other lives to the extent of winning awards. That community was robbed of an angel. And the uprising that is happening in that town is right and good. And if it shifts people's attitudes 
And again, if it changes one heart and mind, so be it. That was a very special woman. People are hard-pressed to say anything against her. And you talked about how if the tables were turned, would things be different? My reaction in that mini lecture I did on that situation was my father kept a handgun in his nightstand. If our front door was busted down, my father would have shot. But I can tell you in our town, A, it wouldn't have happened to a white man. B, if he'd shot back, he would have been arrested like Brianna's boyfriend was. Things would have been very different. I can't fully comprehend a white person's mentality when they look at these situations and they don't realize the great injustice that is taking place because it's so very vivid to me. When you have a police officer that puts his knee on a man's neck and boldly looks around at the audience, the people who are standing there, knowing someone's recording it and doesn't give a damn and gleefully pushes the life's breath out of another soul, that wouldn't have happened if that man had been white. But George was black. Well, I tell you, you know, when I, when I said I, I think, um, I said I think in, 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 in respect to my thoughts of it, but, you know, you're correct, of course. My, what I, I think I know is the same thing in, in, in terms of what I was saying. And the reason that I know and the reason that you know, black and brown people don't feel uh, maybe as optimistic as you said in terms of change coming out of Brianna Taylor is because, and I, I'm just going to go down a really short list, but Rashard Brooks, Daniel Prude, George Floyd, Brianna Taylor, Atiana Jefferson, Ora Rosa, Stephen Clark, Botham Jean, Philando Castile, Alton Sterling, Michelle Casu, Freddie Gray, Tanisha Fonville, Eric Garner, and the, and the list goes on. And it seems like every single time we, you know, uh, uh, this situation happens and we look, for, we look for something to come out of it, nothing does. I mean, who does not, uh, who, who can forget the, the birth of the Black Lives Matter uh, movement? You know, who can forget Trayvon Martin? And it, you know, so when we talk about change from that perspective and we ask that question is because we feel like there is, where is the stopping point? Where does it, where does, which life brings enough change and consequence that the next person who, you know, will even, won't even think of attempting, you know, such an action. And, and I don't know that any of us can answer that no matter 
what happens because here we are after all of those names and that's just a short I mean the list is long you might have heard my mouse clicking in the background that's because I can't remember all the names so I was scrolling through some of the names on on the computer as I was um, calling them out to you after all of that here we are with Brianna Taylor now there should have been a difference right enough has happened You've had enough movements. We've had marches since George Floyd that have not stopped. We've got Portland, Oregon. We have, and yet, you know, all those other uprisings, those little, those little, um, or those instances that cause these uprisings all over the country, many of them are as a result of someone else getting shot. I remember looking at, and I, I can't remember his name, and I would ask that whoever's listening to this, forgive me for not remembering his name, but I remember the gentleman the other day I watched that video of him going into his car and being shot five times in his back, seven times in his back. He's now and paralyzed. His children were in the yes, and the children were in the car. I mean, if you, you know, forget about anything else. As a human being, and, and you know, how do you do that? as someone who is representing the right, supposedly representing the right side of things, that one, and, and, that, and let's be clear, you know, when, when someone goes through a threatening experience, if you're in your home, irrespective of your race, creed, or color, and you go through a threatening experience and you need help, you know, most people will dial 911. And that means that help is on its way not because or, or, or not depending on, on, on the color of your skin, but for the situation that you're in. And you should be able to expect that if you're the one who is calling for help because you're the one that's being threatened, that at the outcome of the situation, you should be the one still standing. And this just seems to keep repeating itself irrespective of the of how uh, these these horrid situations that continue and i know i digressed a bit because um i felt that this was the opportune time to say that because again i i i applaud and commend what you're doing i'm um i i have to say that you know you it's really bold of you um i asked you the question earlier about how receptive people are because in a time when people seem so angry, I was expecting you to recount some situations since writing your book that, you know, someone was really angry with you. Um, but, you know, the fact that you got enough people to read your book and hopefully from this conversation, even more people will read your book. You know, you know maybe somewhere in there, you're a part of, of the hope for the future, the hope for the change. You know, I can't see that definitively and neither can you, but at least, you know, you, 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 you made an effort. And that's what's so important because the story and the solution cannot be one-sided. So, and, and before, we, before we wrap up, I don't want to leave on that note because I know that you're working on, on something else. So before we wrap up, why don't you tell me a little bit what your next uh, venture is? I'd like to tell you too, real quick. What I'm currently working on 
is sexual intellectual female. And this is a term I created for my master's thesis years ago. Um, and it talks about the 21st century woman. And she's a, a bit of a feminist, but we now have these younger women who are saying, I'm a sexual being and that doesn't make me a slut. And I'm also an intellectual. And I talk about our power lying more within our intellect than it does with our sexuality, even though, of course, the media would have us believe our bodies are a commodity. So that's well and good. I'm almost done with that. My next project, which I've already fallen in love with and am getting ahead of myself in research, is about 20th century black entertainers and the racism that they experienced throughout their careers. So you look at men and women alike who are making tons of money and you know, records are in almost every household across the country and they can't find a place to sleep. They can't find a place to eat. They have to find the nearest town that will serve black people. Typically these restaurants and houses were on the black side of town. Um, it's very interesting to realize even the racism that was experienced into the late 20th century. So that's the next project. Wow, that, that I want to leave. That sounds Go ahead. Really, Sorry, that's okay. That sounds really, really interesting. Um, and I would hope that once you write that book, that you know you'll come back as a guest on this show, and we'll continue that conversation because I think as people who have the the ability and the opportunity to lend our voice to change, that you know the conversations must continue. And and you were invited to come back and and you know share when you you know when you're done with the book. Um, I'm also interested in the in the in the current project as well because um, I do have some upcoming guests who will uh, have similar stories you know um, relating to what you're currently working on. So that's an open invitation. Um, I also thank you. We'll do it. Yes, and I also want to offer my thanks to you not only for writing that book, but for being a guest on the show, um, for making a bold step in a time when you know the world is so angry, either you know either on one side or the other, but at a time when change is so necessary, and that lending your voice to the movement makes sure that the noise you know does not die down until change comes. So, you know, Regina, thank you again so much. It's, it's so appreciated. I know my audience will appreciate you and, you know, keep on doing what you're doing and come back and visit us, you know, once you finish that book. Will do, Julian. We can change one heart and mind at a time if we work together, I think. Thank you so much. say a very 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 special thank you to my guest Regina Hansen for coming on this show for sharing uh, her story and for being part of a, such an important conversation I also want to thank my listeners for your continued support and as you know you can go to any of your favorite podcast apps 
And you can listen to this episode when it's released and all the episodes of 247 Real Talk. You can also head over to the website at www.247realtalk.net where you can find all the episodes and information on the guests. And if you'd like to be a guest in the show or you'd like to send me a message, you can email me at podcast at 247realtalk.net. Anyone out there who'd like to purchase uh, Regina's book, you'll also find that information in the body of the podcast. Until we do this again, take care of yourselves and each other.